0: This week, The Entrepreneurs is fixing up and keeping sharp for the holiday season. With a new year just around the corner, we're hearing from some top names in tailoring and sportswear to offer you some inspiration for tackling 2023 in fine style. We'll check in with Patrick Johnson, renowned Aussie tailor and clothier, to hear about growing a great international business at the perfect pace. We'll also enjoy a branding corner from our friend Bob Sheard, in which he tells us about the reimagining of famed mountain wear brand Salomon. And we'll wrap things up with more super sportswear, courtesy of one of Toronto's finest body of work. So make yourself comfortable. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You are listening to The Entrepreneurs. We're off to Australia to kick things off with the visionary behind fine men's and women's tailors and clothiers, P. Johnson. That man is Patrick Johnson. And Pat, welcome to The Entrepreneurs. It's lovely to chat with you. And I wanted to start by asking you, You're kind of presiding now over, it's a global business. In your mind, let's go right back to the beginning of the journey. Did you kind of set off thinking, yeah, I can take this thing global? Or did it have a a more kind of quotidian beginnings? Take us back to the start.
1: When I sort of started the business, it was this GFC, Deep GFC. I was living in London at the time where I had been for a number of years. I met my wife over there, want well, my wife-to-be. We weren't married then. And it came to the point where we sort of needed to, she needed to come home because her sort of visa ended. So I decided to kind of come home with her. I left Australia pretty young and came to London. I wasn't really thinking about coming back to Australia at the time. I grew up in between Adelaide and South Australia and rural South Australia. So I was, I was pretty happy in London. I met her and then thought, okay, cool, I'll go back and sort of check it out and see what's happening in Australia. So at that time it was very, it was very basic. I came back and I'd been working for a tailor in London and really enjoyed it. And I worked sort of running his retail business and I came back to Australia and I started very basically, I started as a traveling tailor, going around with a suitcase, measuring people. And at the time I didn't have any money. I think I came back with about 1500 pounds, but I was based in Sydney and was sort of traveling to Melbourne and Adelaide every week. And I remember at the time I, couldn't even afford the airfare to fly. It was more expensive. I drove my car, eight, nine hour each leg. And I was just sort of seeing whoever I can, as many clients as I can, and just getting to know, I suppose getting to know Australia again, really. And that's how I started the business. And in the beginning, I wasn't really thinking about anything other than, can I pay my rent and make a living out of this and do what I love? It sort of started from there and slowly grew to where we are now. I think in terms of sort of my vision or ideas for the business in the beginning, I've always sort of had a a bit of an entrepreneurial streak. I had a lot of failed businesses when I was younger, you know, growing up and things I wanted to do and breeding emus was one of them, which was really interesting. And my father's from Jersey in the Channel Islands. He came over at a young age and he was always, he runs his own businesses and stuff. That So we always had that kind of thing where my dad very much pushed me out of my comfort zone the whole time and said, give it a go, mate. Try it. See how you go. Keep it really simple, don't overcomplicate it, go day by day and those kind of things. So I've always had him very much as a mentor in that respect, which is very, very helpful. And then also, I think, you know, coming from London back to Australia, you see opportunity. You think, oh, okay, that gives you a bit of confidence as well. But that early beginning really formed the foundation for me to really very much appreciate every single client you have and, and, you know, really, really appreciate them and take care of them. So it was sort of invaluable experience. And that's where it started and, and, and grew.
0: Yeah, I find that so interesting. Not only that you kind of rediscovered Australia to a degree travelling around, but you rediscovered or discovered the real intricacies, the nuts and bolts of building a business. Do you think that's one of the secrets, if there is one, as well as just your creativity and your obvious industry, was having to do that, master every single piece? You've really got this very granular understanding of all the little components that come together, right?
1: It's the way I operate. I can't see any other way to do that. You have to understand every aspect of your business. Otherwise, how do you even delegate these tasks or build someone into those tasks and understand if they're doing it in the, in the right way? So I think that's a very important aspect of it. On the flip side of it as well, like I really enjoy that. I enjoy doing all the little bits. I think one of my strengths is I'm pretty pragmatic, but yeah, it's a, it's a very valuable part of the way we run our business now for the business, I want to have a good understanding of it. I want to have a good nuts and bolts understanding of how it works. But even inside our company, we have a lot of the employees are partners in the business. And I set aside a reasonable chunk of the business for the employees to become partners. And they, they work up to that over time. And what that has meant is for our business is very much that you get a lot of people inside the business at the coalface thinking like owners the whole time. And learning to think like owners because in reality if they're not if they're part of the business or, or the, it's it's a profitable thing but if they're not, if it's not making a profit or they're overspending in one category or whatever they don't get the dividend that they could get so it's like, it's a kind of nuts and bolts thing at the end of the day but they're really thinking of an owner at the coal face, and that to me is where you can really create a very good culture in a business where it's stripped of all that middle management you don't need it
0: Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of sharing the responsibility, sharing the fun parts of the process, but also sharing some of that responsibility, which can weigh heavy, can't it, of course, on on entrepreneurial characters. But if everyone's invested, literally and metaphorically, it can be be pretty powerful. I think that sounds like a great way to do things, Patrick. And you, you mentioned Tuscan. I did want to ask you specifically about that. If we look all through tailoring through fashion through the whole of the sort of garment trade a different narrative now i guess than when you started out even about sustainability provenance really understanding supply chains just tell us why it's so important for you guys to have that i think i'm right in saying you own i think you've the factory or or you're invested in it in in tuscany which is which is obviously really interesting but i think we we probably know the reasons patrick but underscore why it's so important to have that kind of engagement with that part of the process as well
1: I think in the beginning for me, it was most important because I just hate waste, to be honest. I don't know if that's a rural upbringing or the way I was brought up. I don't think we ever had a light switch on growing up because my dad would just walk around the house and switch them off behind me the whole time. I just can't stand that idea of waste. And when you work in close, there is waste and it's sickening. It is actually physically sickening, you know, and you kind of like, why are we doing this? We're doing this to chase a profit or to chase a number. Why? Are so I was like, I don't want a business like that. I don't want a business where you just go for a minimum sell through and then you kind of like, well, what do we do with the stuff at the end of the season? Like, who cares about it? I wanted a business where every garment matters that we make, every garment has a home, every garment has a purpose. And that intrinsically meant minimal waste. And then we went through all the other things in the business, like we've almost completely eradicated plastic in our business. We look at the effect of a couple of flights a week around the world, from Italy and from China and from all the other places we work. And we look, how can we offset that? Like, we're not perfect. We're by no means perfect. You know, we definitely have a negative impact on the environment by running our business, but we're trying to get to a point where we actually don't. And we can have positive impact over time. We're not there, but we're, we're really working towards it. So that was very important from the sustainability point of view, from me, just so we could, without sounding too corny about it, sleep at night, really. The goal of my business has always been to build very useful and beautiful wardrobes for our clients in a sustainable way, right? So when someone comes into our business and they're in the door, I suppose they've already been- sold on the fact they're going to get something for us, right? But but when they're in there and we go through that process, it's really more for us about understanding who is this person? What do they need in their life? What's going to help improve their life in terms of with their clothing? I'm under no illusions, like what I do isn't that important in the grand scheme of the world. You know, we're not saving the world here. But in our own little corner, what we're trying to do is give people improve their life improve it through aesthetics and improve it through experience and help them feel a little bit more confident about themselves and you know when you're walking down the street on a sunny day and you've got this little movie running in your head and you're feeling pretty good I don't know and I'm trying to like discover what that movie is you know what's this idealized version you have of yourself in your head and then we make the wardrobe for that and we're trying to pull that out of people and that can take time so in that respect, we're trying to do that in a really thoughtful manner. For some people, getting a suit completely handmade in our karate workshop, it's not for them. It, it's not only outside their price bracket, but it's also it's not really what they need. And Some people might want to get a garment made in our pronto factory, which is a lesser price point. We can't cater for everyone, but we do try and cater and look, look at the client and go, how can we be the best for you? That's very much how we approach it. And in that, it really does make the whole process much more sustainable because you think our clients are coming in and spending a good hour with us. They're investing their time. So they want to return for that time, right? So they're going to focus and they're going to think about it and actually what do I need? And our staff are experts at what we call empathetic listening. And they're really forgetting themselves in the process, having a really good conversation with their client and going, What do you need? And from that, it's not wasteful shopping. It's not, I've 10 of them three. It's not like the Rodney Dangerfield in in the golf shop in (laughs) Caddyshack, you know what I mean? It's like, it's very much, it's very much they're thinking, you know what I actually do really need? I need a couple of really beautiful white shirts. And when we go, okay, for your face shape is the perfect color for you, do you like that? Yeah, I love that. That's great. And hopefully then we've sorted their wardrobe out so they can get on with the more important thing in life. We've done our bit and then they can go and live. And that's how we view the process.
0: I love that, Patrick. I think that's really great. Let let me just talk a little bit about, well, I guess the brand's evolution, sort of beyond tailoring. You do other things as well now, and people can see it, you know, whether it's knitwear or sportswear, women's wear as well. Let's talk a little bit about that evolution. And also, the way you kind of blend traditional values and sometimes looks with the modern and contemporary, I've tried to kind of sum up what I think the look or the feel is. And it is, it's kind of tailored, but relaxed. There is an ease that runs through it. I don't know if that's a bit of a cliche about, you know, the Aussie approach. You've spoken about it already. Maybe it's just a consequence of being, remaining very client focused and making sure people get what they need. But do you like that idea of blending seamlessly the modern and the trad and being, formal and informal at the same time, even in the same garment. It's a tricky t- trick to,
1: to pull off. Yeah. But do you like being characterised that way? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a sort of pretty true characterization. I mean, I think I was reading this book, Designing Design, it's by Kenya Harra. Japanese scholar and mm. designer but mm. he wrote about Japan and saying Japan's on the edge of the world and, and as Japanese from his point of view they understand and I'm, I'm not quoting him verbatim i have got to get the quote wrong but <laughs> Japan's on the edge of the world and as Japanese we understand that we're country bumpkins in that knowledge we're able to take the best from the west from the rest of the world and reinterpret it without history holding us down for today and I think that as an Australian, I've been able to do that. I'm able to look at, I understand I'm a country pumpkin. I'm actually am from the bottom of the world. And I go around the world and see what's going on. And, and you're able to take inspiration from all these different sources, but I'm not, I don't need to do an Italian style of tailoring or a British style of tailoring or this or that. I can just mold them all together and look at it with very fresh eyes. It gives you a lot of freedom doing that and able to hopefully create something that is new and exciting. And I think the aesthetic you're talking about is that we've looked at all these inspirations we have from around the world, from America, from Japan, from the UK, huge amount of inspiration from the UK, from Europe, from all the different parts of Europe. And we're constantly looking at it and going, God, that's cool. And often you're looking way back, like we're looking back, back old movies, old things and all things. And then looking at all that and going, cool, like we want to design something unique you know and, and I, think I don't want to you know, copy someone because that's extraordinarily boring so we want to design something unique so we're able to get this sense of purity from getting all these sources and putting them into one and and that's what we do in our design process and strive for and whether it's doing sportswear or whether it's doing traditional tailoring you know I started with traditional tailoring for me it's because I see that as the backbone of the men's male wardrobe but I never it to be the only thing we did I want to build up the whole wardrobe and the reason we evolved into these different things is our clay it was demand from my clients. We have clients that are obsessed with golf. What what should I wear to play golf? I don't like anything out there. I'll make you something. And then you make it and then other clients ask for it and you make it. Like we we do a lot of angling stuff. We call it angling, not fishing because our clients are very specific about it's angling. (laughs) But we do angling clothing and that just came from a couple of guys in the business. My business partner, Tom Riley, is obsessed with angling and a couple of other guys. And like, I can't get what I want. It's all covered in a lot of bright colors and all this stuff. And I want something Mm. nice I can wear. And so it just came from that. And then it grew and grew and grew. And the women's wear the same. You know, it came from I really want to get something. Thought, okay, cool. We're focusing on this right now. We can't do it. And, you know, I thought it was like 11, 12 years into the business. We said, okay, we're willing to do it and looking into women's wear. And how how can we do that as well? So we've got a model in our business that is live slow, die old. And it's a bit of a take on, you know, the reverse of Vivian West was live fast, die young. But the idea around it is like, we like going pretty slow i want a business that lasts 100 years i don't want to get private equity investment and pop my business up on steroids and then go sell it for a monster and sit around and do nothing like i don't want that at all i want to grow my business really nice and slowly over time and challenge myself every day and hopefully in like 50 years we've got something really unique that actually is something of great value to the world and to my employees and to my clients
0: Absolutely, Patrick. I think it's it's a wonderful philosophy. And it's interesting, you know, you're talking about Kenyahara and designing design. And one of the things that I recall from that is this idea about understanding some of those almost, I don't know what you'd call it, the sort of philosophical tradition in a way of Japan, Japanese culture, Japanese design, which is Mm. the importance of emptiness, the stuff that isn't there. And I guess whether you're looking at that from designing a magazine, something we hopefully know a thing or two about here at Monocle, as our Mm. uh, creative director, always says to me, you know, the white spaces are as important as the things where there's lots going on. On. Do you think that is, again, fundamental to this philosophy? This idea that what's not there is as important as what is, that idea of being slower taking your time not trying to conform to other people's expectations there is something definitively philosophically Japanese as well I think about your approach
1: yeah I mean I think tricks are tricks for a reason because they're tricky you know <laughs> if like, I get sick of them like it's like you can't just be using all these tricks the whole time a designer it's very tempting and some designers are masters at using lots of tricks but the way we look at it is I, I want my clothes to be like the love things in the wardrobe I want them to be the backbone of the wardrobe and to do that they need to have a sense of um, calm and space and in a way be a bit of a blank canvas for the rest of your life i'd say we do have a bit of minimalism in what we're doing when by no means totally minimal but for me that's very important because if you put too much of personality into the clothing i think it can suffocate the wearer a little bit and it suffocates their personality and their ability to express themselves the excellent patrick johnson check out that
0: winning aesthetic for yourself head to pjt.com now You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Next up, we take a little detour for another one of our branding corners, where we hear the story of a brand, its creation or its reinvention from someone who knows a thing or two about the business of branding. Our friend Bob Sheard, co founder and CEO of the agency Fresh Britain, and a regular on this program, stopped by to talk to us about his agency's work on Salomon. Bob began by explaining what made the project and the brand unique.
2: This was the first time anyone had said to us, We don't want you to come up with the answer. So what happened is Adidas sold Salomon to AMA Sports. AMA Sports came to Fresh Britain because of the work we'd done on Nike, which they liked, and they said, we need you to give this company its confidence back. So we need you to help us find the solution. We did that, and we designed a workshop approach, which now underpins every bit of work that we do. It's always workshop collaborative approach. And why that's interesting is the guys that were in the room on the two days we did the workshop was the future president of arcteryx the future president of levi's the future president of sunto all of which became great clients of ours so the collaborative approach for anyone that's out there that it works and it helps You network your network the reason why Salomon was fantastic is when we lived in the Haute Savoie it became very obvious to us that it was a massive thing to work for Salomon if you lived and grew up in the mountains it was totemic to the point where many people had got the double firsts at the Grande Ecole and then with a POS coordinator at Salomon because they wanted that, that lifestyle which led to a lot of thinking to make decisions But they were labouring under this lifestyle proposition which was called fuel your instincts. There were about 300 million in turnover, so they weren't small. But it just didn't feel right. And so we went and interviewed everybody. And I interviewed an oldish guy who was working in one of the last factories that Salomon had near Chamonix. And it was about to be closed down and they were going to offshore ski production into China, as was the way. And he said to me quite tearfully, before you decide... Can I take you into a small room and show you something? So he took me into this small room, not much bigger than this, and it was full of files. So it looked like where the auditing was done or something. And I said, what's this? And he said, well, this is the patent room. This is where we file all our patents. And this is where George Salomon, the founder, used to come to escape from everybody, used to sit in here and escape the troubles of the world. And I said, how many are there? And he said, there are 8,000 patents here for mountain sports innovation. I said, okay, that sounds like a big number. I went and did the research after that. Adidas had just sold Salomon and it was twice as many patents than Adidas had ever filed for all of their sports put together meaning it was more of an innovation company than adidas was it was twice as many patterns as nasa so it's phenomenal they're an innovation company they're not a lifestyle company they had a thousand people that lived and worked in the mountains developing product that was their life i once went out with the footwear designer we went on a long run got back to his house said can i use the loo I went and sat down on his loo and next to me were two downhill skiing gold medals that his wife had won at the Olympics. It's like, that's his his life, it's it's so important to them, it was amazing. So I I then decided that I was going to destroy the word lifestyle and we created a line that this isn't a lifestyle, it's just our life. And they had 600 of the best athletes in the world. So this was a brand with the best mountain athletes, the best mountain designers, with the best mountain innovation. So ultimately, it was about mountain people and mountain product. But what they had differently to the rest of the competition is they were on the front side and the back side of the mountains. So they were at all the Olympic events, but they were also massive in backcountry skiing and snowboarding. They had hard goods and soft goods, and they had products for... Winter, spring, summer, and autumn, so all year round. So they were truly the mountain sports company. That meant we had to do some things. When you get that kind of positioning, it means you're going to be defined by what you do and what you don't do. So part of that was telling them to stop doing snow blades, stop doing rollerblades and stop doing surfing because they just spent about 10 million designing one of the best surfboards ever. But we had to say that's, you know, you don't do that on a mountain, so stop that. But in narrowing that positioning, we broaden their appeal. Today, they're nearly a billion. And I think with Salomon, they could easily be the next challenger to Adidas and Nike. You've got the Adidas and Nike, which are way over 20 billion, 30 billion. And then there are loads around about the four billion marks. So, Under Armour, ASICS, New Balance, Salomon are around about one billion. They got from 300 million with us to one billion on core outdoor consumers. But if they now flip and consider themselves as a sports brand whose arena is the outdoors, that opens their bandwidth, I think, to enable them to take on. Nike who are about the individual, Adidas who are about the team and then it would be Salomon who are about the arena and I'd love to see that.
0: Thanks as always to Bob Sheard of Fresh Britain and we'll have more like that in the weeks ahead on the programme. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. And finally, on today's programme, we're heading to Toronto to hear the story behind a brand new boutique athletic wear brand and design studio, Body of Work. Here are co-founders, Dwayne Vatcher and Brittany McKinnon, who launched the brand in August last year, on why they each left successful careers at some of Canada's best-known apparel brands to set out on their own.
3: My name is Dwayne Vatcher, co-founder of Body of Work.
4: My name is Brittany McKinnon, and I'm also the co-founder of Body of Work.
3: So the brand is basically incepted on the fact that we wanted to bring a sense of ease to activity. We have a long history in the apparel industry, and bringing together the idea of high quality and craftsmanship with the concept of an active lifestyle, we felt like there was an opportunity to bring something to the market that was unique and had something that was a little bit more emotional and aesthetically pleasing. We felt like that was something that when we were looking for that balance in our own lives, it was a bit difficult to find something that inspired us to get outside and be a bit more active.
4: It goes back about 10 years Duane and I were transitioning out of school and starting our careers in apparel. And actually, I moved to Vancouver initially to start my first kind of apparel career role. And at that time, my life was changing quite a bit. I was trying to manage the idea of work-life balance and starting a new career and learning what it meant to still be active and have a balanced life while still kind of navigating the world and navigating my time and, and learning a lot about the apparel industry at the same time. So it was a really interesting kind of moment for me. And, and then Dwayne joined me in Vancouver as well. And I'd say that was kind of the inception of everything because that's where we first really learned our skills and became really familiar with the apparel industry and started working in sportswear. Living in Toronto is actually quite different in Vancouver. Everybody's quite active and it's very much a part of everyday life. And a part of our transition too was learning to balance activity in our everyday lives. and. I've always had kind of a a relationship with activity that changed based on my schedule, whereas Dwayne actually used to be a pretty serious athlete, so he has a different history with activity and now we'd come back after our first kind of roles in our careers. Dwayne was at reigning Champ and I was at Ritzia. We came back to Toronto and we had this feeling that there needed to be a point of inspiration or something that really kind of got us going and encouraged us to be active. something that we were really attracted to when we felt like there was nothing that really represented that feeling. Typically sportswear brands, especially our athleticwear brands, have a kind of an air of intensity or prescriptiveness to how they approach activity and we are very kind of designed for people who never really felt like what existed spoke to that sensibility and so it was kind of just a conversation where we, we felt like we came home with all of this experience and new exposure and perspective and we started to talk about the idea but because it was it's, you know, so much from the heart and something that we had to really talk through and refine as an idea. It took us quite a while to get the idea down and, you know, begin to talk about what it sounds like, what it feels like, what are the fabrics, are we you know, who are we speaking to. So I'd say the journey began there. We like to say that it's inspired by vintage sportswear and the tranquility of nature. So we currently work with bespoke organic fabrics that we knit locally in Canada. So it's actually kind of a little-known secret that Canada is famous for making some of the best cut-and-sew knitwear in the world. So it's a great privilege to work with some of these local artisans to craft small-batch fabrics and small-batch collections. Currently, we are, I would say, we, we started out with sweatpants and sweatshirts because we felt like it was a really approachable way of creating products that integrate really well into people's lives. And the goal is to, in the future, introduce more performance wear, but initially start with those really approachable items that fit so well into your life, whether you're going to a class or on your way to the office and you're riding your bike. We wanted to create products that were approachable and beautiful and in colors and creating a palette that had longevity. So longevity in general is a word that we use a lot. It's considered when it comes to the materials or the styles that we develop. We actually worked really hard to create a unisex fit. So that was an interesting design exercise because we wanted it to kind of fit everybody.
3: I think simplicity is something that a lot of people talk about trying to achieve. And I think in our design process, it's very important that we have that longevity come through and simplicity is a big part of that. So just mostly working on the cut and the little things that people might not always notice in a garment. and. I think, again, we try and stay away from flashy colors, logos, prints in that sense. There is a chance that we could work with that in the future. I think for us it's very important to start in a place that's very simple.
4: We like to say that we are approaching it with an artisanal take on sportswear, which is not typically what you see, so small batch, really considered... Fabrics and colors meant to last the test of time, not being logo-heavy, just so that it can really actually have a place in your wardrobe for a long time. I think it's encouraging that sportswear is growing and people being active is a conversation kind of across the board and we're happy to offer a new perspective in that world. Sportswear as a category growing is actually very encouraging because it's actually rooted in, I think, enriching people's lives and that's the way that we like to approach it. Being active, even if it's approached with ease, can be very transformative for a person's life and we really like the idea of doing something that's actually rooted in something meaningful.
0: Dwayne Vatcher and Brittany McKinnon, co-founders of the Body of Work sportswear brand and design studio in Toronto. You can browse their collection of Toronto-made athletic wear by heading now to bodyofwork-studio.com. Special thanks to Monocle's Thomas Lewis for his reporting from Toronto for that. And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer, with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. My thanks to them as ever. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. And don't forget, while you're there, to subscribe to Monocle magazine. You can also follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the entrepreneurs team, write to me or email laura at lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.